this morning's sermon text, and you can turn in your Bibles, I hope you have one, to Exodus chapter 18 is where we are going to be. We're going to look at all 27 verses before us in this great chapter of God's Word, and it's a chapter that's full of a conversation, full of counsel, full of even a conversion of a man named Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law. And kids, along the way, what I want you to see if you can notice as I read these verses for us as the number of times that the phrase father-in-law is mentioned. It signals for us the prominent place that Jethro has in this passage. But let me read our text for us and then pray that God would bless our study of it and then we'll begin. Let us hear now as God speaks to us through His Word once again. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom. For Moses said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer. For Moses said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons to meet with her. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their welfare and went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people." And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And the next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to inquire of me to God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses, his father in law, Moses' father in law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God will be with you. And you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, 
And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men from all Israel and made them heads over the people, cheese of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask your blessing upon us. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit this morning, that we might hear this wonderful word of truth, that you would apply it to our hearts, that our eyes would be opened, that our souls would receive it with meekness and humility and honesty, that we would listen as people who are dying, that your spirit would help me to preach as a man who is dying, that we might look upon Jesus Christ and find life in his name. Amen. You may be seated. For those of you that have certainly bought DVDs, maybe it wasn't even that long ago when you bought many DVDs and brought them into your home, I'm sure that you would have noticed how marketers and suppliers and distributors were trying to get you to buy those discs, those movies, by putting no small number of bonus features on the back end of that movie or perhaps an extra disc even in the case with the DVD. And one of the more common features that you would find that was a bonus for observant fans or interested watchers was something of like a behind-the-scenes reel of how the story was actually made. You know, it was the story within the story. Or it was, it was kind of a behind-the-scenes peek at what life was like behind the closet of the actors and the actresses, what an ordinary day on set might look like. And in the same way, we kind of get a behind-the-scenes peek of Moses in Exodus chapter 18. Because if you've been with us in recent weeks, following along in the recent chapters, you've surely noticed how Moses, yes, he is the dominant character, humanly speaking, in this story. But he's dominating the story with these dominant events. Plagues, Passover, parting of the Red Sea, last week victory over the Amalekites. But what we get to see today is, is Moses... Behind the scenes, what his family life is like, what his ordinary leadership of the Israelite people is like. And we get to see what all of that is like, not really through the lens of Moses as much as it is through the eyes and experience of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. For this man from Midian bursts on the scene, and it seems like we've forgotten about him. And so Moses, as he's telling this story, wants to emphasize over and over and over again that we know exactly who Jethro is, namely his father-in-law. Because kids, how many times, if you were counting as I read those 27 verses, was the phrase father-in-law mentioned? If you guessed 12, you guessed correctly. 12 times in 27 verses, we're told that his father-in-law said something, his father-in-law did something, his father-in-law thought something. And so in a way that might be altogether surprising, and you might want to think what exactly it is that we're supposed to learn from this interruption that is Jethro's counsel, Jethro's conversion. Jethro bursts onto the scene here in Exodus chapter 18. The text begins with Jethro coming. The text ends with Jethro departing. And all we want to do is notice two simple things in our text this morning from Moses' wise father-in-law. First of all, we want to notice Jethro's worship. And then secondly, Jethro's wisdom, because the text divides really in in half on those two parts. And while it isn't the point of the passage, 
I trust we will see uh, that Jethro's pattern, Jethro's picture of godliness is one that's worthy of our attention itself, isn't it? For the Christian life is often little more than that twin pursuit of, of worship and wisdom, no matter the circumstance or situation we find ourselves in. So let's notice, first of all, Jethro's worship, which begins in verse 1 of chapter 18. We're told once again that Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and Israel, his people, how the Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, the word heard is pretty important in the narrative of Exodus. The last time we heard heard was back in chapter 15, verse 14. There Moses was singing the song of praise about the deliverance and redemption that God has brought his people. And he was saying, people are going to hear about this power of Yahweh. And they're going to tremble in terror. But you see, Jethro hears about the power of Yahweh. But he doesn't run away in terror. Rather, he races towards his son-in-law with his daughter and his grandchildren. Because you see in verse 2 and 3, evidently along the way, Moses had sent his wife Zipporah and their two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, home. When that happened, we don't know. Why that happened, we don't know. All we know is what verse 5 tells us. At Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. So the location for this scene, according to verse 5, is at the mountain of God. That's Mount Sinai, children, this great place where God is about ready to meet with His people. If they weren't actually at Mount Sinai, the text is telling us they were close to Mount Sinai by this point in their journey out of Egypt. And it's important also for us to notice that Jethro came to Moses, because that word was quite significant in the text we looked at last week. If you just rewind the tape of this tale, if you go back up to chapter 17, verse 8, where we started last week, you'll, say, you'll see, then Amalek came. And there's a juxtaposition happening in this text between these two men who are outside of the Israelite community coming to the Israelite community. Amalek came and attacked. Jethro came, and now he greets Moses. And the people, you'll see that, of course, in verse 6 and 7. They meet, they exchange pleasantries, and then they return to the tent. And then it seems as though they really get down to the business of filling each other in on the stories of their lives and what exactly God has been up to in those many months since Moses would have left Midian all the way back in Exodus chapter 4. Now, just a few weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast with an interviewer interviewing this soccer coach that just won a cup title. Uh, in the 2020 season. Second time he's won one in the last five years. So the interviewer asked him, hey, what's different this time around? You know, five years on from winning your first title, what feels different this time around? And the coach said, well, this time around I'm, I'm humbler than I was the first time. And it's a rather significant statement because this coach, certainly in our soccer circles in which I used to run, he is rather notorious for an unbelievable amount of brashness and arrogance and pride. And So you think, wow, that's pretty interesting, humbler this time around. But then as I began to listen to the interview, uh, you began to wonder and you could be forgiven if you doubted the sincerity of his humility because it seemed that every sentence was punctuated with I, me, mine. How great I am. Look what I have done in bringing my team this great success. I'm glad they actually listened to me this time around. And it's precisely the opposite kind of narration that Moses now employs. Look at verse 8. He says to Jethro, 
Look at all the Lord has done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. Look at all the hardship that has come upon us in the way and how Yahweh has delivered us out of it all. You see how Moses, in a way that maybe you wouldn't be so surprised in certain circles of leadership in our country today, he doesn't amplify his ability, his authority in bringing Israel out of Egypt, his courageous, compelling, charismatic power. He simply says, look at what Yahweh has done in bringing us out of bondage and slavery. Actually, the only thing worth mentioning for us is the hardship that we went through. Other translations would render that as distress. And I wonder how much might change in your life if that kind of pattern became more prominent. A pattern that says, look at the Lord's power in my life. You know, the only thing worth telling you about as it relates to my life is just the hardship and weakness that I've gone through. Because certainly it's in the midst of my weakness that I most understand God's power, His strength, and His sovereignty. And so what you find then now in verses 9 through 12 is what the old Jewish rabbis called Jethro's conversion. And whether or not he actually was converted at this point, we can't be too sure, but we can be certain that what is pictured for us in verses 9 through 12 is a scene of worship, Jethro's worship, because he was a priest of Midian. That means he would have been a priest of a pagan god among a pagan people. So in all likelihood, it probably does represent his conversion here. Moses, in very real ways, just preached the gospel of the Exodus, the good news of redemption to Jethro. And I want you to see three things about his response. Certainly three things that ought to be pretty regular in how anyone responds to the good news of redemption. Look at number one. He responds with joy. Verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. The word in the original there for the verb rejoiced, it's a, it's a rather intense one. The, the rabbis used to render it as something like inflicting cuts on the body, uh, how intense it is. It's the kind of joy, it's the kind of excitement and enthusiasm that's so deep in the core it seems to infect your entire being even down to your flesh. That's the kind of joy that Jethro had over this good news of redemption. And some of you might need to feel, maybe many of you need to feel the Spirit's conviction on this point. Or how often do you find that the zeal of a new convert dwarfing your own passion for Jesus Christ? And yet, you know the glory of the gospel much deeper than that person does for even walking with Christ for decades. The joy of a new convert swallowing up your delight in Christ, yet... You've known His power, kindness, and mercy, and compassion so much longer. I wonder what kind of joy wells up in your heart when you think about the redemption that's found in Jesus Christ and His new exodus. So, Jethro, number one, receives the good news with joy. Number two, he receives the good news with trust. Look at verse 10 and 11. He blessed Yahweh. He said, Blessed be Yahweh who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now... I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. And this is quite pivotal in this place in Exodus because, students, you might remember if you were with us months back when we walked through the plagues in all one sermon. It was in Exodus chapter 9 that God spoke to Pharaoh through his mouthpieces, Moses and Aaron, the purpose for the Exodus, the reason for the redemption. He says, what is happening to you, Pharaoh? What's about ready to happen to my people? 
is for the purpose that my name would be proclaimed among all nations. And here it is, for the first time in the way this narrative works. His name is now being proclaimed among the nations to a Midianite man named Jethro, hearing the good news, the gospel of the Exodus, and now saying, now I know that Yahweh is the only great, true, and living God. It's receiving the word with trust. And certainly if you even glance down again at verse 9, 10, and 11, even just 9 and 10, you can see the degree to which deliverance is underscored in this gospel of the Exodus. That they had to be delivered from something. Slavery and bondage in Egypt. They had to be delivered to something. Worship of Yahweh. And if you're in here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you wouldn't say that you're following the Lord Jesus Christ, this text is telling you this entire story of this Bible's second book is telling you that you must be delivered. That you, likewise, are bound and enslaved. They were enslaved in Egypt to Pharaoh. You were enslaved to sin and to Satan. They must be delivered through the blood of the Passover lamb. You too can be delivered through the blood of God's Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. They too needed to be delivered to God's presence and worship. You too must be delivered from sin, Satan, and death into God's presence of worship forever. And such a deliverance only happens in the same way it does to Jethro. Through trusting in who God is and what God has done for people like you. Receive the news with joy, trust. Thirdly, receive it with praise. Notice verse 12. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Simply enough, when you hear God's word, when you hear the good news, when you respond to the gospel, praise always follows quickly. Sacrifice of praise, be it here an offering given to the Lord or what we're called to in the New Covenant age. Romans chapter 12 tells us our entire life is to be devoted to the Lord as a sacrificial offering of praise. That leads to, doesn't it, fellowship and communion with God's people, even Table fellowship and communion with God's people. So this is Jethro's worship. And then in this two-day period in Jethro's life, highlighted here in chapter 18, we turn to the next day in verse 13, and we move from his worship to his wisdom. And if you ever had the chance to visit our presbyteries, one of our presbyteries' quarterly gatherings, I tend to recommend if you want to see the nature of the business of the church done in our region, in the PCA here in North Texas, you'd be wise to come on Saturday morning. Because if there ever tends to be any excitement at a presbytery gathering, it tends to be on Saturday morning. Because it's when men are licensed, they're ordained to the gospel ministry, so therefore on the floor on Saturday morning they're examined. as There's their fitness, their doctrine, their views of theology. And so the normal process is an examiner will kickstart the questioning with his own questions of sorts. And it's quite common that someone who's there on the floor will get asked a very simple question related to Presbyterian church polity. That means, kids, just the way in which we're governed. And the question tends to go something like this. What text would you point to to explain or to defend Presbyterian church government? And one of the texts that that examiner is always looking for an answer to is Exodus chapter 18. And we want to see why. Notice now, as the day turns, look at verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from 
morning till evening. So kids, you want to picture the scene here in Moses' life. This is the behind-the-scenes look into just the ordinary life of Moses when these great exodus redemption events weren't happening. What was Moses doing? Well, Jethro sees him basically sitting there. And people from morning till evening in one long line passing by Moses that they would receive his wisdom, his counsel, his decision is really what it is. You want to think of Moses here as a judge. So he's getting questions, he's getting cases, he's getting concerns brought to him. And he's God's mouthpiece and he's supposed to deliver God's word to God's people. So they would bring to him all kinds of things that you maybe not have thought about before. Hey, my neighbor and I were traveling along the way and he loaded up all his gear into my wagon and one of the wheels broke. So who should pay for that wheel? And Moses would tell him who should pay for that wheel. Or, hey, you know, we got 12 cattle between us, and we kind of mixed up one of them. We don't know whose it is, so which cow belongs to which person here? Or it might be something as simple as uh, our neighbor across the way has a whole lot of manna over there. Do you think that's okay, Moses, for them to continue to store that manna? Because I didn't think they were supposed to keep it. And on down the list of these kind of simple cases that Moses was supposed to be deciding on. So much so that notice what Jethro mentions and questions in verse 14. He essentially says, what are you doing? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? It could be, in Jethro's mind, a way of scolding Moses. Moses, what are you doing all day, morning till evening? At least one million adults in this people that you are adjudicating all their cases. What on earth are you doing, Moses? I actually think it's more likely it's curiosity. What are you doing, Moses? Because what Moses is doing is actually pretty common in the Egyptian culture in which he was raised. Jethro, as a Midianite man, would be like, I've never seen someone do it this way before. So, Moses, what are you doing? Well, Moses explains, notice verse 15 and 16, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make known God's statutes and God's laws. So again, Moses is saying, I'm just giving God's word to God's people. I'm telling God's will in that certain situation. And I do think there's a simple correlation we ought to make throughout the ages to the nature of faithful ministry among God's people, even in a local church like our own. God has given ministers, God has given elders, God has given leaders to do little more than what Moses is doing. Apply God's word to God's people. No matter the question, no matter the situation, no matter the concern, no matter the circumstance. That's what ministry often is. Just giving God's word to God's people. And the problem here for Jethro isn't what Moses is doing. It's how he's doing it. Uh, Moses needs to recognize that ministry is never meant to be a monopoly. For you'll see what Jethro says in Verse 17 through 19, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you, and you're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God will be with you. So students, if you just scan your eyes through the next few verses, the, the advice is rather simple. Get elders. I had a child after the first service bring to me his notes that he took in the sermon, and they're in bold words at the top of the page, get more elders. And that's basically what Jethro is saying to Moses. But he's adding to it certain kinds of elders. Elders of a particular character. Elders of a particular quality. And then what Jethro is saying, well, Moses, take those men. Those men that are qualified. Put some of them over thousands. Some of them were hundreds. Some of them were fifty. Some of them were tens. 
Christians. It's the beginning of this elder-led Presbyterian form of church government. But what I want you to notice, particularly if you're a member here at Redeemer, is verses 21 and 22. Because in those verses, we get five characteristics about what's required of godly leaders that are going to serve God's people. And as we even said earlier... Just in three weeks' time, you're going to have the occasion to, to vote on a man to ordain and install to the office of elder. Kids, if you're a communicant member here, you have the opportunity for that same vote, that same decision. And you want to make sure that you're thinking about these matters with the truth of the Bible, with God's Word attached to it. So let me give you five simple characteristics, qualifications of godly leaders according to Jethro and the Spirit and his inspiration, number one, they must be men of ability. You see verse 21, moreover, look for able men. The word able is a military one, actually. More often than not, in the Old Testament, it gets translated something like warrior, strong man, or, or soldier. But clearly in context here is to be a man who is strong in Scripture. Because you see in verse 20, the kind of ability that they need to have is one about warning them about statutes and laws, making known the way that they must walk and what they must do. Uh, a qualified man is one who has skill in Scripture, ability to train people in the truth. Number two, he must be a man of piety, men who fear God. I, ho I hope you know your Bible well enough to know that Fearing God, it's really the sum of the Christian life. It's the sum of piety itself. It's the reverence towards God that, that grows obedience to God. This kind of deep-seated affection and adoration, even fear and trembling that belongs God in His holy, majestic, and mighty character. Earlier this week, I was, I was reading an article related to Frankly, just the latest Christian celebrity to fall into scandal and even scandalize the faith. And the journalist asked toward the end of her article, Is there anyone left that fears the Lord? And certainly there are people left that fear the Lord. But certainly we could say in our context and culture today that we are much more content to platform a personality than emphasize someone's piety. Sadly, too often to our detriment. And Jethro says, don't do that. Appoint men of ability. Appoint men of piety. Number three, appoint men who are trustworthy. Men of reliability. The, the word there is actually really more about truth. As these are men of truth. They're not easily swayed. They don't kind of change their minds simply and quickly. They're bedrock ridden into the foundation of God's word. Fourthly, they must be a man of integrity. They hate a bribe. You can't corrupt them with money. You can't buy their vote. You can't buy their decision. You can't buy their influence. They're men who are full of integrity to the very core of their character. And the fifth thing you want to notice is that they're men of constancy. You see verse 22 as it begins. And let them judge the people at all times. There's truth to the gospel ministry, even for those who are lay elders, ruling elders in our church, that there's this kind of perpetual nature to serving and shepherding God's people. You don't get to do it just when the time is convenient or as time permits. It's this perpetual calling. At all times, they are to be judging, leading, giving, feeding, and teaching. So this is the kind of man that Moses is to appoint. This is the kind of men, men of ability, men of piety, men of reliability, integrity, and, and constancy. That's the kind of men that we want to find even growing and flourishing in our life 
Men, I would even encourage you, if you don't even aspire to the office of elder, to be known as a, a man of those five qualities, even as you lead your home, even as you relate to your friends, even as you serve in ordinary ways in this church. Numbers 12, verse 3 says, Moses was the most humble man that ever lived, of course, apart from Jesus Christ himself. So it's not surprising, notice his humility, verse 24, he listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that Jethro said. Elders are chosen, elders are appointed, elders are set over different groups of people. And then Moses, notice verse 27, let his father-in-law depart, and Jethro went back to his own country. Thus Jethro's worship, thus Jethro's wisdom. A couple months ago, I was going to visit a church member. When I got there, the individual was outside reading a book, and it just happened to be a book that I've read before. And decades past, it used to be a bestseller of sorts. And when I first read the book, I was a little bit frustrated early on by the number of interludes that the book had, because I didn't really understand the purpose for these interruptions in the narrative. And in time, you began to see exactly where it was going, that these interludes, these interruptions were giving you information from the past, that were necessary to understand the conclusion coming in the future. If you've ever read through Exodus in one sitting, which would take you a couple hours, but still be quite a valuable thing to do, uh, you might recognize that chapter 18 functions as something of an interlude in this story. You have these majestic, these mighty events of the Exodus building right up to chapter 18. And then Jethro shows up. These majestic words that burst forth from the mountain. After Jethro shows up. And so, if you're like me, you wonder, what's the deal with Jethro here? Why does it slow down to this 48-hour period of time with Moses' father-in-law? And there are a variety of different reasons I think that we could mention. But certainly what I think is happening here is actually a connection to something that came in the Bible's first book, in the book of Genesis. If you were with us last year when we were working even through that text, perhaps it was even at the end of 2019, in chapter 14 of Genesis, we met this mysterious man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek showed up on the scene and had this fascinating interchange with Abraham. In ways that you probably not have realized before, there is a striking correlation between Melchizedek and Jethro, both serving as interruptions, interludes in the ongoing story of God's covenant redemption. Both are foreign priests. Both show up after a major military victory. Both show up just before a covenant is cut with the covenant mediator. Both bless Yahweh for the deliverance He's worked for His people. Both enjoy a meal of bread and communion with the covenant mediator. In some ways, what these men are doing, these foreign priests, are showing that the covenant mediator, respectively, Abraham and Moses, aren't actually the promised, long-awaited, long-desired serpent crusher to come from the seed of the woman. Melchizedek is there to show that there's someone greater than Abraham. That the true deliverance is not going to come through Abraham. In a way that might strike you, Jethro is performing the same function here with Moses. In case you doubted it, Moses isn't going to be the serpent crusher. He needs counsel to know how to lead well. He needs instruction to know how to organize God's people. And so what we see here is what we often see, don't we, through these major figures in Scripture, is that it's pointing us forward to the true covenant mediator and redeemer who was on the way. 
Because I think there are two specific ways that Moses, even in this passage, is showing us, pointing us forward in this interlude, information from the past, to drive us to the conclusion coming in the future, who is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Let's notice these two things as we begin to close. Number one, the coming Savior will proclaim God's good news. Moses is here doing exactly what God purposed for him to do in the Exodus. He's preaching the gospel to the nations. Here, the nations in the form of his Midianite father-in-law, Jethro. In the same way, God is going to send forth his son, Jesus Christ, to preach the gospel to the nations. He bursts forth in Mark chapter 1, preaching the good news of the kingdom. He prays to the Father on that great night of his betrayal, John 17. Father, I have made known to them your name. And as I send my spirit, I will continue to make known to them your name. A Savior is coming who's going to proclaim the good news. Number two, a Savior is coming who's going to bring peace to his people. Bring peace to his people. Go back up to verse 23. Jethro's wisdom and counsel has a purpose and a point with all of these elders that are qualified to serve. He says in verse 23, If you do this, Moses, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. I suppose you could add that as the sixth characteristic and quality of godly elders. Peaceability. Not irritability. Men given in their ordinary life to promote peace. Not men given in their ordinary life to to promote complaints, quarrels, criticisms, and grumblings. In my own experience and just talking with other church leaders just through various avenues where I find myself. I never cease to be amazed at how many men, brothers in the ministry, are enduring times of difficulty, hardship, and sorrow for no other reason than the church has appointed less than peaceful men to be leaders. But the good news that's ours in Jesus Christ is that our true king and head over the church, the great leader of God's people, is none other than the prince of peace himself. That he's not just our peace. The text tells us in Isaiah chapter 9 that of the increase of his government and of his Peace. There will be no end. What kind of leader do you need? You need one who worships Yahweh as he proclaims the good news. I hope you are listening to Jesus Christ. What kind of leader must you receive? One who brings you the peace that surpasses all understanding. I hope you're receiving this leader, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would help us in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our struggles to find joy in Christ, to trust in your Son, that our lives might be a constant praise and worship to you. We pray that even you would continue to equip us here at Redeemer with leaders that love Christ, that promote the peace of Christ, and that reveal the character of Christ, that we might be sanctified by the Spirit, that we might endure, that we might persevere as we bear witness to your Son. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.
Well, let's stand together as we want to sing our hymn of response, number 699, singing the chorus, Stayed upon Jehovah, for in Him we find perfect peace and rest.